Jay Vacanti and I came up with this idea that you could make tissues and organs from scratch. And you can now use that to create artificial skin. And there are a lot of companies trying to develop organs and tissues from scratch, and a lot of them also trying to develop organs and tissues on a chip. I wouldn't call that necessarily mainstream that people use this every day, but I believe at some point they will. Hi, welcome to Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Dakun, co-founder and CEO of Mercury, and also an investor in 300 plus companies. Hi, and I'm Raj Suri. I'm the co-founder of Lyft and Presto Automation. Today, we're talking to Dr. Robert Langer, who is the most cited engineer ever in history and the co-founder of 40 companies in the biotech space, specifically focusing on drug delivery and tissue engineering. When I was a student at MIT, I had a chance to get to meet him, and he was an inspiration then, but then he's become even more preeminent thanks to his co-founding of Moderna, which happened in about 2010. I think Bob is prolific, you know, as an academic, creating 40 different companies, and he has a very unique style of being an entrepreneur. This is something we don't really see in the software world, you know, somebody making such a big impact in a very tough space. Yeah, Bob is just very humble, and it's obvious from his humbleness, willing to work with a lot of people and being so optimistic about about the world, uh, yeah, that's where a lot of his kind of ideas and uh, impact comes from. And we go into, you know, three main areas with Bob. We go into, you know, technology, like the, the technologies he's developed, his, his inventions, because he's not just, you know, working on existing technology. He's been inventing the whole time. And we go into his model for being an entrepreneur and also just some management and life advice because he's built a, a factory of innovation for biotech, which I think is unparalleled. And there's a lot to learn from, Bob, whoever you are, as to how we can maximize innovation and impact. So very excited for this conversation. Hey, Bob, welcome to the Curiosity Podcast. This is an honor for me and Nima to get a chance to chat with you. I've been so inspired by what you've been doing since the MIT days. So since then, I, I founded a couple of tech companies, software companies, nothing to do with Kemi. But, you know, always really excited to learn more about biotech and see what lessons can be applied just generally, and also excited to see how the technology is developing. That's kind of why Raj and I started this podcast. We always enjoy talking to experts in, in other fields that we don't know that much about. One of the cool things about you is you applied kind of chemical engineering to medicine, which not that many people have been thinking about these kind of multidisciplinary things. And I think that's like where a lot of good ideas come from. So we're hoping we can spread more ideas and have a good conversation. You've been working on the cutting edge of various fields throughout your career. And I'm just wondering, you know, having read about some of your inventions and achievements um, in various fields, I'm wondering what technologies that you've developed are you the most proud of? And which do you believe that are very promising, but haven't yet become mainstream or across the chasm into becoming widely adopted? Well, I guess I'd say that the work we've done on drug delivery systems, microparticles and nanoparticles, that I think by now is pretty widely adopted. Not that there's not a lot going on in that area and a lot more to be done, but I'd say that, that those are used for really the basis for many different things that we all use. I mean, the most famous recent example would be the COVID vaccines. You know, all of those are in nanoparticles. Some of that work in terms of its early origins go back to the 70s and were 
that I did many years ago, but of course, many, many people and many companies have developed it further. But there was a paper we wrote in Nature in 1976 showing for the first time that what people thought couldn't be done in terms of delivering large molecules and DNA and RNA or large molecules, so are proteins and peptides, but that people thought what couldn't be done actually for the first time could be done. And I think that ended up being important for a number of reasons. So that that would be an example of a technology that I'm proud of, and of course, many people have contributed to, but a lot of it started with things that we did. In terms of areas that I think hold a lot of promise that I hope will have even more impact, they've had some, is the, the area of tissue engineering. And so tissue engineering is the idea, and Jay Vacanti and I came up with this idea that you could make tissues and organs from scratch. And you can now use that to create artificial skin. And there are a lot of companies trying to develop organs and tissues from scratch, and a lot of them also trying to develop organs and tissues on a chip. I wouldn't call that necessarily mainstream that people use this every day, but I believe at some point they will. Is that using stem cells or is there another technology there? Well, it can be using stem cells, but it could also be using the patient's own cells. It could be using, like for example, in our lab, we've made hearts on a chip and it could be with heart muscle cells. We've made gastrointestinal tract on a chip and that's using intestinal cells. We're working on developing a brain on a chip. Wow. That actually involves seven separate cell types. We're collaborating with Li Wei Sai and Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department and the Pickauer Institute. So they're different things and they could be stem cells. In the last one, we've taken stem-like cells and converted them to different brain cells, different brain cell types, so that you could make patient-specific organs on a chip to do drug testing. But there's all kinds of possibilities depending on what somebody wants to do. When you say chip, you don't mean a computer chip, right? Like this is another usage of the word chip? It would be a chip-like system. I mean, in the sense that it actually could be a computer chip if you could get the cells to grow on them. And you might want to use even things on the computer chip to analyze information or to do microfluidics to flow media into it. But you're right, it's not a classic computer chip. And like the idea is you could grow a whole heart using these methods. Is there any limitations to like what you can do? Well, I think the limitations right now are scientific limitations. I mean, I think we can certainly grow heart muscle. I think a whole heart someday, probably that will be able to be done. But I don't know that we're there yet. I don't think we are. What is the state of the technology? Like how close are we? It's funny because Imad and I work in this this field where intelligence is being, you know, made to be synthetic with artificial intelligence, whereas, you know, you're working in this field where you're making like actually artificial tissues, right? How far along is that technology? Well, from a clinical standpoint, like I say, you can make new skin now. It's not perfect, but you can certainly make new skin for patients with diabetic skin ulcers or patients who are burned. You can also, making blood vessels, one of my former postdocs, Laura Nicholson, she's CEO of a company, Umacyte, that's making new blood vessels, and they're in phase three trials. They've even made new blood vessels for people in Ukraine, you know, that were in the war. So that's also moving pretty well. But there are many others that are at much earlier stages. There's work going on in pretty much creating any new tissue or organ. Some are more challenging than others. What is the difference between some of the um, progress in like skin cells and blood vessels versus like a heart? Like, what are the, some of the complexities you see between the different types of cells? 
Well, first, I guess I'd say structural things, which skin and blood vessels are to a certain extent. It's a little bit easier to do something structural than something functional. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's a real generalization, but I think it's not an unreasonable way to look at it. Also, sometimes there's many cell types that you want to build in. And sometimes you need vascularization, you need innervation. So some tissues are going to be more challenging than others. Some cells may be hard to preserve or keep in the right, what's called differentiated state. So there could be a a lot of different challenges depending on the tissue or organ. What do you think of the idea of making like a chicken breast or like beef steak using, (laughs) I assume, similar-ish technology? There's a bunch of companies kind of working on that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. When we did that tissue engineering back in the early 80s, you know, over the years, a lot of people, in fact, two of my students, Shulamit Livenberg in Israel and Ali Kadamasani in California, they have started companies to do just what you said. I mean, they can make meat that way and steak that way. So I think it's a good idea. I mean, I think it's absolutely worth trying to do. None of these things are trivial, but I think it's worthwhile. You would say it's still a science problem, right? It's not like an engineering problem right now. It's still like getting it all to work and tasting good is still, you'd have to make like significant scientific discovery for that. I think it's both. I think it's some engineering and some optimization and some science. But the things that you're just saying about getting the right flavor and texture and everything, those are things that people are working on. And of course, it may vary depending on what you're trying to do, whether it's hamburger or steak or something else. Just taking this a little bit forward, assuming they were successful with building these synthetic tissues, can you play that out for society and just thinking about like, you know, at some point, do you have humans with, you know, 5% synthetic, 10%, 20%, I can see it going all the way up, you know, to, to you having almost like fully synthetic humans. Do you think how that's how it's going to be adopted? Obviously, it's going to be curing diseases first, but how does that work? Sure. Yeah, I think I see it more as the second. In other words, if somebody has a burn, you can make skin from scratch. And really the skin ideally would be natural skin. Same thing with the blood vessels. And I would continue, you know, same thing with cartilage and same thing with bone and really much anything. Usually you're right that people have lost some tissue or damaged it and you're repairing it. But usually the strategy that we've adopted has been largely to take cells from the patient themselves or a close relative or like you said, stem cells. And basically, if you do stem cells, you'd convert them to the cell type you wanted, put them on like a scaffold, and the scaffold helps them to reorganize. But ultimately, that scaffold itself completely dissolves. It's like a template that completely dissolves. And then you really get back the organ or tissue that you might have started with or something that's as close to that as possible, whether it be skin or any of the other tissues that I mentioned. The potential is, is really significant for all these things. One question I have uh, in general about the technology and when you're thinking about these technology problems and solving them, have you found any applications for this new form of AI? Are you familiar with AI, what, what's happening recently in the last few months with some of the new developments? I'm familiar with AI. I mean, I'll just say this at a high level. I think AI in the medical area definitely has potential and I think can be useful for a lot of things. And But at the same time, I think there's also a lot of hype and a lot of places claiming to use AI. But my understanding of AI, and we, you know, I interact with people at MIT who are real experts at this, like, say, Regina Barzali and others, is that you really have to have good data sets 
to do AI. So I've certainly seen companies and business plans say, well, what I could do is, you know, say I want to make a lipid nanoparticle or a new drug or something like that. And I'll just go to the literature and I'll evaluate and take the data from 5,000 papers and I'll put it all into this, you know, computer program and I'll get an answer. I don't think that's going to work because the fact is you don't know all the variables, right? You don't know if somebody's taking a drug when they ate their last meal, what was in the meal, what the temperature was outside, a million different things that aren't known. I think in a case like that, which what I'd control uncontrolled data sets, which you get from the literature, which you really can't compare, and yet plenty of people are claiming they can, I don't think that will lead you anywhere. And that's certainly been my understanding. I think where you can use it appropriately is to create large data sets that are well-controlled, where you do know all those variables. And I think that can be very useful. I think it's going to be useful in the medical area for imaging. Regina Barsley, who I mentioned, has already been doing that for breast cancer imaging. I think it can be useful in drug development in some cases. I mean, people are exploring that. I know she and Jim Collins at MIT are are doing that because you could analyze chemical structures. But the things would need to be well-controlled. So I think the question is, what are people doing and what are they claiming they can do and so forth? You know, I've certainly seen lots of people claiming they're using AI and that's going to change the pharmaceutical industry. And it probably will change it in some ways. But a lot of the ways that are being claimed, I don't think are going to happen. Google did this thing called AlphaFold, where they can predict protein folding structures. Did you think that was a very impactful thing in your field or is that kind of outside your field? It's outside my field, but I know enough to know I think it's very impactful. Yeah, I think that's a terrific, terrific advance. Is there things like that that you think are like still unsolved that AI could help with? Well, I think there are a lot of things that AI can help with. I mean, I think AI can help on probably looking at proteins, which that could do, and trying to help figure out the right structures. If you had data sets, you know, let's say you you did experiments where you had literally thousands of, of molecules and you looked at transport of, and you knew their structures, and you had a good brain barrier model, for example, it might help you figure out what types of molecules, what kind of structures would be best at crossing the blood-brain barrier. Again, if you know enough about different goals, like say you have a receptor and you want something to bind to it appropriately, I think it could be useful in areas like that. So I think there are plenty of places that it will make an impact. Again, nanoparticles are another one. You know, nanoparticles, if somebody looks at a lipid nanoparticle, there's four components. If you have high purity nanoparticles and you're able to analyze the surface and try to figure out what happens, you know, with cells, I think you could use that to maybe design better nanoparticles. So I think there's a lot of things that could be done going forward. I think it's harder to go backwards and say, you know, there's all this data in the literature and I'm going to mine it and I'm going to get an answer. I'm curious about that last piece, actually. You mentioned, yeah, you can look at the data, at all, all the literature, but you don't know some of the other circumstantial information about, you know, what the situation might be. Don't you think, though, that all the circumstantial information will eventually end up in a database as well? And then the AI will be able to train themselves both on the literature and the situation, whatever you know, the other data is. Because ultimately, you can make the AI smarter if you add the right data. And eventually, all the data is going to end up in the AI. So it should be able to make better decisions than a human in almost every situation when it has the right data. 
I think you're saying what I'm saying. In other words, if you have the right data, yeah. then it will be useful. I agree with that. Yeah. So I do feel yeah. it will be useful when you have the right data. Well, all I'm trying to say is a lot of people right now don't have the right data and are making the claim that it's gonna, you know, I can just go to the literature without having, as you said, the right data and get answers that are gonna lead somewhere. But sure, yeah. I do feel in a going forward basis, it will be valuable, but exactly when you'll be in a position to know what all that right data is, that's not necessarily so straightforward, right? I mean, just to pick one example that I mentioned, you do a clinical trial, different people eat different things or different ages, they've had all different kinds of environments. I think it's non-trivial to figure out what all the right data is. So that may take a substantial amount of time. I mean, years. Now, when that will be available is anybody's guess, but I think you're hitting on really the important question to me is when will we have the right data? For a lot of things, AI can be very, very valuable because the data is more simplified. But when you start dealing with medical things, knowing what the right data is, I mean, I think in general, people don't know. I mean, nutrition alone is a pretty good example. I mean, there's always kind of speculation about what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat. And by the way, whenever we eat anything, there's probably thousands of components in what we eat. So thousands of different molecules. So I think that'll be a great opportunity for AI someday. But if people think it's going to be tomorrow, I don't think so. Yeah. And by the way, sense. if we had the right data, even if we didn't have AI, we could do a lot better. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And the last point I guess I'd make is AI isn't really new. You know, AI has been around for 60, 70 years, maybe longer. You know, all of a sudden, because of certain phenomena, everybody thinks it's changing everything, but it's not a new thing. So I think it's great, but the hype level is also pretty high. <laughs> yeah, it's getting its hype cycle moment. I had a question. It kind of goes back to what you said earlier. mRNA, I guess, was discovered in the 60s, and then you did work on it in the 90s. And obviously, we had the COVID vaccine in 2020. Like, that's a long path. What were this things that changed that like enabled Moderna? Maybe give us a quick history of like how that came about. Sure, well, I think there's scientific issues and business issues. So science, things that were important, the way I'd look at it is, like you said, mRNA itself was discovered in the 60s. We did delivery with tiny particles of nucleic acids, mRNA being a nanoparticle in the 70s. As you go into the 80s, then people would also encapsulate messenger RNA and certain things like lipid nanoparticles. And then there was a group in Germany, which would ultimately lead to CureVac, which uh, started to look at RNA for vaccines. There was a group out of Penn, you know, which was Carrico and Weissman, that worked on ways of modifying RNA to control its immunogenicity, which was 2005. Then I'd say BioNTech, which was another second company to start. Both, by the way, CureVac and BioNTech were tiny companies, started in Germany, and they were going to make messenger RNA in therapeutics. In 2010, that's when Derek Rossi came to see me, and he had done work building on some of that pen work, but actually using it for very different purposes. He was trying to convert like a certain type of cell into what's called an IPS cell, that's a stem-like cell. And people had done that with DNA before, but nobody had ever done it with RNA, so he did that. And he came to see me, he was interested in starting a company. People had tried, in fact, the Penn people tried to start a company in 2005, but they weren't able to get people interested. People didn't think it was gonna work. So you only had the two German companies starting. 
So in 2010, Derek, myself, Ken Chen, we talked to, who was a cardiologist at Harvard, and then Nubar Fayan, who was a chemical engineer, a very visionary guy, he started uh, flagship pioneering. And so he thought that that would be a, a very good thing to do and put some money into it, as did Tim Springer. So that started in 2010. And then we you know, really met almost pretty much weekly to develop plans for what we might think about mRNA being useful. But one of the key things also was hiring great people. So we hired uh, Stefan Bonsell in 2011 to be the CEO and Stephen Ho the next year to be president. And we kept hiring people. In fact, a number of the people from Moderna are my own students. So it kept evolving from there. And of course, if you look at either the scientific literature or the business literature, people would always say that Moderna is, was way overvalued. It was never going to work and so forth. That, by the way, even happened even in 2020 when we did the first COVID vaccines. The Boston Globe, our local newspaper, you know, after we announced the phase one data, they had a big art front page article with my picture on the front page because they asked different scientists and clinicians and analysts, stock analysts, what they thought. And they, the headline was, this is not how you do science. Of course, they were all wrong, but that's often the case in these areas that a lot of people think they know what's right and what's wrong. To me, that was an opportunity to do some real good for the world. And of course, Moderna, you know, and BioNTech, which I mentioned before, those two little tiny companies, no big company would touch messenger RNA and for COVID vaccine until finally Pfizer would get involved. They did a little bit with BioNTech in 2018, and they became their partner in 2020. We talked to different companies like Merck and they all said, no, this is never going to work. So we did it ourselves. And of course, that changed history. Why do you think it is that people are always reacting like that to new ideas that they're dismissive of them? And Your guess is as good as mine. I always think there's this <laughs> thing I call conventional wisdom, you know, which is in the textbooks. And a lot of people have worked in areas for years and they think there's only one answer to some of these things. And usually they're older people, and but they're very good at telling you you're wrong. I've experienced that my whole life. Mm -hmm. When we did the early drug delivery work, they said that was impossible and that was like science fiction. Same thing with the tissue engineering. Anytime new ideas come up, I think the challenge conventional wisdom, you'll get a lot of opposition from the different communities. I think they come from different reasons. The scientific community, they think there's a certain way of thinking and a certain way of not thinking. I think the stock analysts, or I guess as good as mine, I mean, there's so many things that go on in that area, you know, people shorting stocks, you know, and they get benefit out of analysts saying bad things. And the analysts themselves, honestly, they, I don't think, have the background to understand these things, at least a lot of them in any deep way. And when you look back at what's happened, it would be staggering. If you tried to use artificial intelligence to look at how the stock analysts picked, it would be pretty interesting. A lot of them wouldn't do very well. <laughs> and finally, you have the news media you know, which wants to titillate people and get people excited and often pick bad quotes for headlines and things like that. And they sell normal newspapers that way. Do you think it matters? Because if something is valuable and the idea is valuable, eventually someone will buy it and the market is like maybe a reasonable truth seeker? Or do you think a lot of innovation and ideas are held back because of this kind of conventional wisdom and I yep. guess incentive structures in the system? Well, I think they can be held back. A lot depends on the determination of the people that are pushing them. 
And in the medical area, I'd say it also depends on their ability to raise funds. You know, like I mentioned, the people at Penn that did outstanding work, I mean, they tried to start a company in 2005 and they weren't able to. Maybe if they had been able to, things would have gotten better sooner. I can tell you when I was a postdoc, this goes back to 1974, the reason I developed those nanoparticles in the first place was to isolate molecules that would stop blood vessels from growing to tumors. Those are called angiogenesis inhibitors. And what happened there is, again, a lot of people said that would be impossible, fortunately and unfortunately. So it took 28 years from our paper in science before the first blood vessel inhibitor was approved. And the reason it was, again, is because Genetech, and they had a scientist, Napoleon Ferrara, first they put billions of dollars in it, and he was very determined to show that you could do this kind of thing, and, and that would lead to Avastin, which has been one of the best-selling biotech drugs in history, also to new drugs that could stop uh, macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. But the point is, is if you didn't have the naysayers, so to speak, or if money mm -hmm. flowed more easily, I think treatments for diseases would have happened sooner. That's fascinating, Bob. You know, we face the same issues in software land. I'm curious, you've been coming up with new solutions to old problems for many, many years, you know, several decades now. What is your process? How do you come up with these ideas to solve these problems? So a lot of what I do starts out in the academic lab. And usually it's curiosity-driven research, or we're trying to, you know, solve some type of very futuristic problem. So the idea is, I mean, I've gotten ideas from listening to the radio, from watching TV. Sometimes people come to me with medical problems and so forth. So they could come from any place. They could also come from students or postdocs. So they've come from all kinds of ways. There's not a particular model for that. But I guess the point is, if we go and we solve some of these things, or we make a discovery or an invention that I feel can have an impact, I don't want it just to be sitting in the lab in a scientific paper. I want it to get out and do some good in the world. That's where patents come in and that's where companies come in. And I think the challenge at a company is very different because you have what I'll call a platform technology. I mean, messenger RNA and nanoparticles is certainly a good example of that. And then you have to think, well, where could it be most useful? And you don't get that many shots on goal because if you pick the wrong ones, you know, you're spending a lot of money and the company may not do well. So I think it's important to really analyze, once you have these platform technologies, where it can have the greatest impact. And to me, that's a partnership. It's not just me. In fact, I may play even a smaller, medium role. It's a combination of scientists, business people, clinicians, regulatory people, marketing people, and so forth, trying to ask, well, in each of their areas, where this technology might make an impact and where it might not. You see your role as like the fire starter or someone to like get an idea, the visibility it needs to get the attention for all these people to kind of make good decisions about how to leverage the technology. I think it's more than that. I mean, basically, the invention or discovery often starts in our laboratory, but a lot of times the students who work on it and the postdocs who work on it, they want to see it make a difference. So we've started a company to do that. You know, we've already spent maybe four or five years in the laboratory on it. And some of my students are investment people like in venture capital and so forth. And I might talk to them or some of the people in the lab might talk to them and then they might put some funding into this. And I think everybody participates, you know, in terms of it's a team effort between myself, the investors, any other founders and the early stage employees. And then you keep going from there. 
I think Raj's question was kind of, you know, what's stopping you becoming the conventional wisdom? You've been around for a long time. You've seen a lot of things probably fail and a lot of science not work as well, right? Like, how do you stop approaching new things with cynicism and like saying, hey, we tried this, it doesn't work? When I talk to students, it's not in my mind that certain things are probably not going to work. It's more how long will it take to get them to work? Something could be scientifically flawed. I mean, that's a whole different thing. But a lot of times when somebody comes up with a global idea, I don't know that it's not going to work, but it may take a very, very long time to get it to work because there's so much science that needs to be understood. So I think when I usually talk to people, that's what I try to get them to think about. Like, well, what's the plan? How do we get from the idea or the invention to it becoming a reality? What needs to be done? And that, by the way, I mean, that's part of when somebody does a PhD thesis. I think that's part of what they go through is to devise a plan to do what we're just saying. And I think that's a great learning experience. But if I can see early on, and if the student sees early on, that something might take 30 or 40 years, well, that might not be the best thesis or the best postdoctoral project. Have you sometimes come across things that you thought would take 30, 40 years, but actually did get done surprisingly quickly? Or maybe things that you thought were scientifically not possible, but someone discovered something like surprising or novel? I mean, there's interesting things happen all the time, but I'm not that much of a skeptic. So I kind of think that almost anything is probably possible. It may just be a question of how long will it take? How many people can you get to work on it? And how much money can you raise to do it? But certainly certain things have been done quickly. I mean, obviously the COVID vaccine is a tremendous example, but what did that take? That took not only good science, it took a tremendous amount of money. It took the government, you know, really getting behind it with Operation Warp Speed. It took the FDA and other agencies allowing things to happen faster than they normally would. I always believed it would work, but I certainly think that the fact that we were able to get a vaccine in less than a year is pretty historic. I mean, it, I think before that, the fastest was maybe five years and usually a lot longer than that. And this is with a whole new type of technology. I certainly thought even though a lot of people told us that it was impossible, it would be ridiculous, and all these stock analysts said it would fail, and a lot of clinicians too, I never thought it would. I mean, we had good preclinical data in animals. We had good clinical data with other vaccines, even though it was early in, in humans, mm -hmm. and we had a great team. So I don't know that you can always predict how fast, but that was an example to your question of what I think by any standards was exceptionally fast. Obviously, what we were able to accomplish with the COVID vaccine was was amazing. Being able to deliver that innovation in a year, it makes you think like how many opportunities are we missing with other innovations and how many people are dying needlessly, suffering needlessly because we don't have that will, collective will to get some stuff done. And uh, maybe we're just too mired in our conventional wisdom to get stuff done. What changes would you like to see in our ecosystem to like uh, drive more innovation across the board? Well, I think it's complex. First, there's always this thing in medicine about first do no harm. But I mean, you have to ask why did we get the COVID vaccine in the first place? Well, part of it was that there was a lot of money. That's something the government is obviously against. Right now, if you look at some of the laws that are being passed, you know, like the IRA law, I mean, that's going to make sure that there is a lot less money available for doing the kind of research for new startups. I think 
that actually, just as an example, at Bio, which is a big biological conference that they have every year, 20,000 people come in Boston. It was funny, I was just reading the newspaper today. You know, it's the IRA is called the Inflation Reduction Act, and the Bio people were all calling it the Innovation Reduction Act, which I hadn't heard before, but it certainly makes sense. And you probably know Merck is suing the government on that law. But things like that are going to make it harder to raise money. I mean, you guys will know this better than me, right? An investor has a chance to invest in the next Facebook or the next Moderna. The medical things, you know, they do take longer and they also cost more money. So if you start creating laws that make it harder for the medical companies, so it's actually going in the opposite direction, I would say, of of allowing these things to happen faster. I think there are other laws too, or other indications. You know, certainly there have been indications that from some politicians that pharmaceuticals companies charge too much money. I understand that, but again, it goes back to that thing: if you and if investors can make more money on a Facebook than which they probably have done very well on than on the Modernas, well, you know, they'll keep investing in the Facebook, and you won't have any of the Modernas of the future. And finally, on patents, you know, there's certainly been talk about patents that, you know, should be given away free. But investors in biotech, I mean, they feel if they put a couple billion dollars into something, they don't want somebody else to do it. So I think, you know, laws on patents are important. And finally, I mean, I tax laws, of course, can have a huge effect. The low capital gains tax certainly makes for any investor more attractive and so forth. So again, I think money is clearly a big driver. Money enabled the fact that Operation Warp Speed was able to put money into Moderna and other companies, you know, enabled that research to be done, the manufacturing to be done quickly. And I think that made an enormous amount of difference. And one thing that Silicon Valley is obsessed with is longevity in general. There's a lot of rich people in Silicon Valley and in the tech ecosystem who have, you know, only one desire left to just to live forever. But there's a lot of investment and thinking around that. As a society, do you think that longevity should be a goal? Like, should we be investing in ways to you know, live forever or cure disease altogether, which is something I know Mark Zuckerberg wants to do, right? If that was the case, so, you know, what would be the right trade-off in terms of what percentage of our federal budget should we be allocating to like, stop people from dying of diseases that could be preventable? Because if you, you can imagine a different society where a large percentage of our budget went towards curing disease, letting people live longer, do you think that makes sense? Do you think that the way the technology is progressing, that the money would be well spent? Well, I think you have to look at the individual things. I'm a big believer in basic research, you know, curiosity-driven research, which NIH and other places have funded. I think there's a lot that can be learned by longevity research, just like there's a lot that can be learned by cancer research and any kind of basic research. So I'm certainly in favor of anything like that myself. But that being said, I don't know that will necessarily live longer. I think we probably will live somewhat longer, but I'm, I expect at some point it's gonna to be tougher and tougher. You'll hit different limits different ways. But I think if you learn things through that kind of research, I mean, I think that's great. And, you know, it's terrible when, you know, little children suffer and die of things like cancer and where people have various diseases. So I think the more we can do to understand those, and maybe find some treatments or cures, I'm, I'm personally for it. I mean, people can argue against it. They may say, well, people live too long already, too much money spent on medicine. I certainly understand those arguments. I mean, to me, my health is 
to me the most important thing in the world. So of my family and my friends and so forth. So I, I think it's a very important thing, but there's lots of other obviously very important things too. I guess a bit of a change of topic. You've been involved with founding 40 companies, I believe. I assume you've had the opportunity to found hundreds of companies since you're obviously well-connected and you've been part of so many discoveries. When you decide to, I guess, help a company and go all in, that decision probably similar to like a decision that early stage investor might make. What are like the factors that you think about before you're like, okay, you know, this is something that I want to give my kind of attention and name towards? Yeah. Well, I think there's two different things. First, what we start from the lab. I always feel, and most of the, all the companies have had something mm-hmm. to do from our lab. So there, the rules I've often used are that we've got a platform technology, you know, nanoparticles or microparticles are an example of that, because that ultimately gives you the opportunity to plug and play, put different molecules in those particles and so forth. Uh, but there's lots of things that are platform technology. So they have a platform technology that we've done enough work that it seems like, at least in animals, it's going to work, that we've published papers on it, ideally papers in you know, journals like Science or Nature that make a big impact, and that we have good patent coverage on it as well. And usually also, since most of the time I've done it with my students and postdocs, that some of them are really interested in seeing the work they did get out to the world. So those would be the general criteria that I've used for, for starting a company. But I've also been an advisor to companies and on the boards of different companies. And, you know, there, again, it might depend whether the company was a big company that was doing things I thought were worthwhile. I was on the board for a while before we sold it to Pfizer for the last, say, five and a half years of it. I was on the board of Millipore. I thought those were good companies doing good things. And I've been on the scientific advisory boards of a number of companies. The reason I've done it is I felt that they were doing good science that would be helpful to the world. And then sometimes there are colleagues of mine that have asked me to do those things and or friends and or former students and all of that makes a difference too. Got it. So you'd like them to be platform technologies, which makes sense. I think platform means something like fairly different in software. I was interested in going like one step deeper. Like, are there that many platform technologies? with drugs or I guess the chemical field like do they come along like very frequently or is this a once every decade there's like an interesting platform technology that deserves multiple investments so the answer is both in a way I mean I think totally transformative platforms yeah they may become along once in a decade but there are lots of things are platforms platforms just means you have some vehicle or some Mm -hmm. approach of making things and that you can make many things. So examples of ones I've been involved with, well, I start out with Genetech. I mean, that's a platform. They use genetic engineering to make protein A, protein B, protein C. Mm -hmm. We started a company called Momenta, which was really the first polysaccharide company. We could sequence polysaccharides. And so there are a lot of them, and we made a number of drugs from that. L-Nylum, which I was involved in from the beginning on the scientific advisory board, that's the opposite of messenger RNA is using what's called siRNA. It's a way of knocking genes down, but you can do that with all kinds of genes. And Moderna obviously is gain of function by putting messenger RNA in nanoparticles. I mean, there are a lot of different, I'd say, platform technologies. I mean, but the ones that are truly transformative, that clearly there are less, and we may not know at the start which ones are going to be transformative and which ones aren't. It's very unusual, obviously, for anyone to found 40 companies. I'm not sure if anyone has done that ever. Maybe you would know, but it's amazing that you've done that. I mean, even P. 
people in the press, like we talk about Elon, he's founded four or five. Why don't other academics, do you think, kind of follow that path? You know, haven't you set out like a, a blueprint for other academics to be as entrepreneurial as you, given the success you've had, the impact you've had? It seems to me like a, you know, a no-brainer that academics who want to see their work create impact, which I'm sure everybody does, shouldn't they follow the Dr. Langer path? Well, I think not necessarily. I mean, first of all, when somebody becomes a professor, I mean, which is what I'm doing, I mean, they may not care at all about companies. A lot of people I know are excited just about the scientific research, about their discoveries. There's been all kinds of great discoveries throughout history. And I mean, I think that's wonderful. I'm also an engineer. I'm not a basic biologist or something like that. So, you know, I suppose there's something about me and about engineering that wants to not just publish these things and make a discovery, but that wants to see it applied towards different things. But I I don't think there's any one way that people should do things. I think people have to follow their heart. I also think, though, that when I started doing this in the 80s, I don't think it was a very accepted thing. I certainly got criticized a lot for that, too. But I think today it is more accepted, and lots of people have started companies, and I expect more will. I think everybody should just follow their heart. I mean, whatever it is that that they're going to be excited about and think they can do good with. Seems like MIT has been quite supportive of you and like kind of doing these spinoffs. Do you feel like a lot of other people would want to do this and follow their heart, but are held back by the academic institution they're at? MIT is a good environment for it. I think that MIT is generally supportive. I think other schools are are starting to get more and more supportive. Certainly Stanford has had a great track record over the years. But I think a lot of schools are trying to do this better and better. At least that would be my observation. I had a question about the talent. In the software world, we often find that that technical founders struggle to learn everything they need to learn about starting a company. There's a lot of business elements. There's a lot of legal elements. There's management skills. Do you find the similar challenges when your grad students are becoming senior people at these companies? You know, how do you build an actual company out of a technology? Do you have these similar scaling problems and how do you typically like to address it? Well, I think you have to look at each situation individually. I mean, there's different issues depending on what the technology is and and what the goals are. You know, some things might be easier than others. Some might require complex manufacturing. So I think you have to you know, really do an assessment of what the technology is to, and again, that assessment might not be done just by me. There might be other people like possible investors or advisors, you know, that would help on that. Yeah. Do you rely on the investors to kind of come in and form the team, form the management team and figure out how to monetize and create impact out of the technology? Well, we've done it all kinds of ways. You know, some investors are better at it than others and some like doing it more than others. So, I think it, again, really depends on the situation. You know, different investors that I've worked with have have different models. Some of these investors are are actually very good at it. I mean, they have PhDs, they've run companies before. Others, you know, more passive and will let others do it. I'm flexible. To me, I just want to make the thing happen. Moderna was kind of rare in that they went all the way and actually manufactured it. Most of the time, these companies end up working with an existing big pharma company and either sell to them or license it. Do you think the model where a company does go all the way tends to be better because like, they can continue to innovate? Or, or do you think just selling to an existing pharma company and scaling that way is like a fine model, which is the normal one? I don't know that there's any one model. Certainly the companies that have become successful, 
big biotechs, they all started out doing what I'll call deals, like at Moderna, there was an initial deal, 40 targets for heart disease for $280 million plus different milestones. I mean, when I was an advisor to Genentech, I remember they got started that way. They did early deals with large companies with human growth hormone and, and later insulin. But and with Elnylam, we had deals with Novartis and Roche and so forth. And with Momenta, we had deals, I think, with Novartis and Myelin and, and a few others. So you get started that way. That gives you an opportunity to have to make some progress on somebody else's dollar, though they get rights and sales too. But it also enables you, I think, to have credibility with investors. But all those four companies that I mentioned, or five, they basically had enough money that they had infrastructure so that even though they did some of their early deals with large companies, they then had the wherewithal and the funding to do stuff on their own. And they have. I mean, all those companies can stand on their own right now. It doesn't mean they won't work with large companies, but they've been able to do it. I think that's a very good model. But having said that, I don't think there's any reason why if people feel at some point in time that they want to sell it to somebody, to a large company, I mean, they can do that too. I mean, that's a return on investment. A lot of it will depend on what the board and shareholders want too. You know, when you're on a board of directors, you have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. So if somebody comes along and makes a tremendous offer, you're almost breaking the law if you don't take it. I mean, I remember even when I was on the board of Wyeth and we sold it to Pfizer for something like a 67% premium, which, you know, I would think by any standards, pretty good. It was $68 billion. And that was, I think, 14, 15 years ago. I had people serving lawsuits to me that night just because I was on the board of directors <laughs> because they thought it should be more. I don't think there's any one way. I think you can do okay in different ways. Bob, one thing I'm curious about, how do you view like the internet and software world? There's obviously a ton of entrepreneurial energy going into that world. But when you look at the types of problems they're working on, they often can seem, I think, very trivial compared to what problems that you're working on. You know, people working on photo sharing apps or social networks or things like that. Do you view that as kind of a waste of talent, a waste of effort or energy? How do you view that? Really, just to be blunt, I think any kind of entrepreneurism in general is a good thing. And I think if you create jobs, if you create products that are good products that people will enjoy, I think that's a good thing. I'm obviously prejudiced in terms of what things, because I think saving lives or improving lives is important. But I think any type of service or product that people are going to enjoy and people get excited about making it happen, I think that's been good. Sounds great. I would love to talk a little bit about just life advice, management advice. One thing that really struck me is that like your talent management style is super unique. You hit on it a little bit earlier that you think people should follow their heart, right? And you're very um, sort of non-prescriptive over what people should do. You work with some of the most talented people in the world coming through your graduate program and you know, your research assistants. Do you try to ever kind of like have a certain set of common values or like a goal that you give to them like, hey, let's try to have as much impact as possible or let's try to do X, Y, and Z and kind of point them towards a direction or are you more laissez-faire? If they're interested in, in the research, they're interested or you try to drive them towards a certain goal? Well, I think both. I mean, at a high level, I want people to be excited about research, to know that research can do a lot of good. But when it gets to the specifics, I might start out with a global idea of what we're going to do on, on some area. I guess I often would do that. And we, 
And well, especially if we have funding for it, which is what pays for the graduate students and postdocs. So I'd say I would do all that. But I also want people to develop and to come up with their own plans and their own ideas. So I kind of feel like I'm a guide in a way. You know, one thing I've often said as a as the way I think about myself being a professor is that when somebody's a student, right, in grammar school, high school, maybe even in college, they're judged almost entirely on how good their answers are to somebody else's questions. But in life, I think what's more important isn't the answers, it's how good your questions are. If you ask really big questions that can change the world, that's very important. So I kind of view my job in a way as how do I help students or postdocs make a transition from somebody who can give good answers to somebody who can also ask good questions. Yeah, I love that. What examples would you give of like some big questions that you think people should be asking or, or some questions like that, like helping them think bigger? There's a lot of things. I'm not even sure where to start. But I mean, I think trying to understand the brain, which we don't understand at all, and how do you go about it? I mean, one of the approaches that we've been using, I kind of alluded to this before, is trying to create brains on a chip where you could have different cell types that you might be able to interrogate or understand better. But understanding the immune system, that's another thing I think that would be be very, very useful. Understanding cancer, I mean, that's still, I think, puzzling for everyone. I mean, different people have theories. So I think those are all big questions that, but I mean, I could go on and on. There's no shortage of things that I think could make a difference in people's lives. We're looking at better nutrition, better vaccines, all kinds of things in the lab that I hope will make a difference. Is there a particular piece of advice you give either around like asking these big questions or is there other things that you're like, hey, I'm always saying the same thing to these students that you have? Is there something that's like a common piece of advice that comes up often? I really think it depends at what stage the students are. You know, if students are undergraduates, mm -hmm. and often even when they're graduates, I always think the most important thing is to learn the fundamentals. I think when you're doing research, you want to start out by really being careful. I know when I first started doing research as a postdoc in our lab, Colin Gardner, he must have had me do a standard curve, you know, 40 times till I got it right. And I think that's great, you know, to do really reproducible research. But I think it depends. I A style that I feel is important and this relates to something you asked earlier, is, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can try to motivate people. And a lot of times, one way that people often do it is to criticize people. That's not what I do. I mean, if I do anything, I try to do what I'd call positive reinforcement. If somebody makes a good finding, because I believe it, I tell them how important it is. If somebody's working on a project that can make a big difference in the world, again, I try to get across how that will help people in the world someday. And so I think that that's the kind of mentor I want to be is to hopefully encourage people to do good science, to learn the fundamentals and, and to try to ideally think big thoughts. Do you think there's a danger in, you know, where kind of academia has gone that people get more and more specialized in like very specific disciplines rather than having a multidisciplinary view on things? You know, obviously you applied chemistry to drugs, which was relatively new when you started. And I feel like a lot of actual innovations come from this kind of multidisciplinary view. Do you think there's a danger that we're getting more and more specialized? I think a lot depends how it's done. You know, I think learning the fundamentals, you want things to be in particular areas. I think for research, I think you can do it either way. I think there is a tendency now in, in academia and our 
Institute where I am at the Koch Institute at MIT is a good example of multidisciplinary things. Classically, there's been individual disciplines, but I think more and more people are having multidisciplinary institutes, research institutes. I think that that's good. I also think regular single interdisciplinary institute is good too. At MIT, for example, there's the Koch Institute, which is interdisciplinary, has engineers and biologists and clinicians in it. But right across the street from us, there's the Whitehead Institute, which I was on the board of for 19 years, and they do just fabulous basic biologic science. I mean, I think both are good. Both are great. A lot of it has to do with the people. So I think it's important to have both those kinds of things. How do you stay motivated and excited? Do you try to not overwork? What's your kind of process for like staying energetic about everything you're doing? I think, you know, working in an academic environment, having great students teaching, you know, but talking to them and being involved. I end up being involved in everything from advising companies to advising governments to giving lectures. You know, I think they're all interesting and all stimulating. So I think trying to do some good at a number of things, I hope helps. Do you try to have a work-life balance or you're just like all in on work and doing everything? I work hard. My wife makes sure that I, you know, when the kids were little, she would tell me, you could travel if you need to, but I'd like you to be home by seven every night to spend time with the children. And it's good having a wife that tells you exactly what she thinks. Mm -hmm. I did do that. And I still, you know, probably do that. I love spending time with my children now they're in their late 20s or, or 30s. But I think that's been great. And I love spending time with my wife. So I certainly think that I've got a decent work-life balance, but part of it I have to give my wife credit for. Maybe all of it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And Matt and I are in the same boat, you know, we're, we're both, we both have young kids, so we often think about these things. One thing I was going to say with young kids, what I did also, which, because I was very busy, you know, I'd end up being asked to give lots of lectures and, and visits. So I'd take each of them one-on-one -on -one once they were past a certain age, like six or seven, on the trip with me. Oh, that's great. That was a great way of bonding and you know, I spent a few days. I mean, the nice thing for me is they still want to do it with their early 20s and 30s. So that's <laughs> nice. I hope that keeps up. How would you take a young kid on a conference? Like with a seven-year-old, that seems like they'll take a lot of work. Conference, I probably didn't at seven. But like, yeah. for example, I took my daughter to New York for a day or two. And I had some good friends in New York. So when I was giving lectures, she was with my friend and Though she came to the lecture, she started crawling up on the stage. But it was, uh, but still, uh, I, I'd have, I'd often, I'd often have friends that would would help if I was going to a conference. Yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> we should do that, Raj. Just curious, do you have any parenting advice for us? It sounds like you've had a very successful time rearing your kids. Well, I give my wife more credit <laughs> than I do, and that, by the way, is one of the most important things: is right good communication with your wife and and doing what my wife tells me to do. <laughs> but I, I think the parenting advice is probably almost obvious, you know, is they love spending time with you. And I think that's an important thing. I, I think being a good person and talking to them about stuff. But I think sometimes talking to them on one-on-one -on -one is often very helpful for them. This was awesome, Bob. I think we've learned a lot. Thanks for taking this time. Well, thank you for having me. Very, very provocative and interesting questions. And I, I wish you all the best. And your companies and with your kids. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Really appreciate it. You're an inspiration. Thank you. My pleasure.